1: Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
2: We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day,
3: and week. By week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all
4: of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts.
5: And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. On today's programme, we'll be joined by the Liberal Democrat Home Affairs Spokesperson Alastair Carmichael. And we'll also be discussing whether Britain has really reckoned with its slaving past with the UCL researcher, Dr Nick Draper.
4: US and British intelligence suggest Vladimir Putin's advisers are too scared to tell him the truth after the Russian president, quote, massively misjudged the situation in Ukraine. The head of the UK's GCHQ spy agency, Jeremy Fleming, says Russia has had to deploy mercenaries to shore up its stalled military campaign.
3: It increasingly looks like Putin has massively misjudged the situation. It's clear he's misjudged the resistance of the Ukrainian people. He underestimated the strength of the coalition his actions would galvanise.
4: Kiev says that officials from Russia and Ukraine are set to resume talks via video tomorrow. And the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is in India today to encourage the country to join in the condemnation of Russia's invasion.
5: Well, here in the UK, the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, has apologised to families affected by failures at the Shrewsbury and Telford NHS Trust that may have led to the deaths of more than 200 babies. We may soon see changes to maternity services in England after the Ockenden report found that 20 years of repeated failures in the quality of care resulted in babies being stillborn or dying after birth. Javid is pledging to hold those responsible to account as the Trust promises continued changes to improve.
4: Well, let's discuss today's uh, political issues with our guest Alistair Carmichael, Liberal Democrat Home Affairs Spokesperson and MP for Orkney and Shetland. Alistair, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, uh, Europe desperately wants uh, energy independence. Do you agree with the government that it's time uh, for Scotland to drill more oil and gas from the North Sea?
2: (laughs) I don't know it's necessarily a case of Scotland drilling oil and gas uh, in the North Sea. But, uh, look, we've got a long-standing, mature, very effective uh, offshore oil and gas industry in this country. We've got a significant resource which is still untapped on the UK continental shelf. Um, We've kind of walked away from our own domestic oil and gas industry in recent years, and I think, you know, you now see as a consequence of that, You've had a growing dependency on places like Russia, Saudi Arabia, some of the Central Asian republics, some of the West African nations that are not, in the nicest way possible, sort of models of political stability and reliability. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people now realize that, um, yes, this is a moment where, as part of the transition towards net zero, then there is a role for oil and gas from the UK continental shelf. Mm. You know, we're not talking about going back to the days of drill, baby, drill, but that actually without a UK uh, oil and gas in the mix, then it will be more difficult to get to net zero. So it's a a different kind of story that the industry has to tell these days, but it's a very important one and I I think this is a moment for it to be heard.
5: Alistair, I find this completely bizarre. This is surely ignoring the fact that there is a market for oil. Even if there were extra drilling off the UK coast, it, it the price would not necessarily be any cheaper than what it is on the oil markets now. This is not a nationalised industry. I find it very strange that the economics of this doesn't doesn't factor.
2: You're absolutely right. It is a yeah. globalized market and the UK on its own is not going to come up with the answer to this. But uh, the UK, as, part, you know, as, a, as a country with a resource on its own continental shelf, does have a contribution to make here, and I think we should be making it. You know, I think you look now, it's not just about the market, it's about the reliability of the market, it's about security of supply and reliability of supply and we have got a contribution to make to that. Um, and, you know, it is, as I say, about, um, you know, a different narrative for the industry. And the industry itself understands that they have got the contribution to make in going to net zero. And the, in terms of the exploration and the exploitation of the resource, mm. then there are a lot of things that the industry are able to do and are doing. In relation to carbon capture of storage and decarbonizing the production electrification of the process, which, uh, you know, it does give a very different story to, to the industry in the UK continental shelf.
5: It's not
2: going to be a silver bullet. Believe me, if there was a silver bullet in this, we would have found it years ago. But I think we have a contribution to make here.
4: That does sound like energy security first and, and green pledges and getting to, to net zero uh, last. Isn't that prioritising so energy it, security? It
2: absolutely isn't. But, you know, if you you understand that from here to net zero... You have to have the so-called just transition. Uh, And in fact, without that, without the contribution that we can make, then you won't have that just transition. Mm. And in fact, you may not actually achieve the transition that you're wanting to do. That's why I say it's it's a very different case than there would have been for oil and gas exploration, maybe even five or ten years ago. But it's an important part of the mix.
5: OK, and, Alistair... You know, you-
2: I, I think a mature politics has got to be able to to see the changed world in which we now live and to respond accordingly.
5: Um, So what about wind turbines versus nuclear then? Um, It looks as if Boris Johnson is now anti-onshore wind farms. Nuclear is, there's still a big debate about whether nuclear is even green or not, and let alone the fact that it takes years to sort of bring them in. What are are the other planks of our energy independence? Um, Surely the bottom line is we have to cut dependence in the UK. We have to say to people to cut the amount of energy that they are using but no politician seems to want to say that
2: well you know that is is your, you're absolutely right energy use and the way in which we manage both demand and supply is absolutely critical not so easy to advance some of these fairly nuanced arguments in the age of the 140 characters, uh, you know.
5: Well, two, put a jumper two. on is a pretty simple message.
2: Well, yeah, <laughs> that's one way of doing it. But, you know, again, you know, I think there's a degree of scepticism in the general public about that sort of public service announcement type messaging that you get from governments. Um, You know, to walk people through it, let them work it out for themselves rather than lecturing them as a good way of doing it. Mm. Um, I share your skepticism about nuclear. I think economically it doesn't add up. It takes a long time to come on stream and it is a kind of analog answer to a digital problem. I think the opportunities with renewable, onshore wind, offshore wind, floating offshore wind, the emerging technologies then in relation to tidal power and possibly even wave power generation. So there, these are all things that have got to be in the mix. And, you know, the reason I say that nuclear is a kind of analogue answer is that it does kind of uh, depend on that sort of conventional 19th or 20th century um, a, a yeah. Sort of generation patterns, yeah. where
5: you
2: yeah, yeah. generate in you know a small number of places a lot of energy, and then push it down wires around the country. Uh, renewable generation, we know, is going to have a, a lot more diffuse patterns of of, uh, of generation, and and accordingly, um, transmission and, and distribution has to change. The consequence of that. On, on another um, subject. I-
4: I just want to ask you about um, GCHQ. The boss of uh, GCHQ, Sir Jeremy Fleming, says that we need much more money for cyber security. Do you think that should be the priority? The intelligence services have been quite generously funded in recent years, haven't they?
2: They have been quite generously funded. Um, but when somebody in that position says, this is a, a bigger problem than you realise and we need more resource, then you take that seriously. You don't. Nobody gets a blank cheque from government these days. But again, you know, we find ourselves in a different, uh, different world situation now than we did previously. And I think some of the fairly lazy assumptions that we've had about uh, spending on defence and security now have to be looked at uh, much more seriously and taken
5: okay. in, in
2: a different light. And, you know, my colleagues in, in the Liberal Democrat defence team, people like Jamie Stone and others, have been saying for some time now, that actually we need to be serious about defending so, uh, spending on, on more, in our, our armed forces. OK, more defence um,
5: spending in that case. I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to rush you, but I want to get to this last point, if I may. The Ockendon report, really utterly devastating. It's on the front page of every newspaper, the report into maternity care. That is another area that surely needs enormous funding. You know, is there an institutional culture in the NHS of covering up mistakes?
2: I think there are probably issues about that because, you know, big institutions like the NHS often do generate that sort of culture, a lack of candour about failings, but I think the culture is more profound than that even. I think there is still a culture, and I find this in my uh, constituency casework and even from my own personal family experience, that too often it's difficult to get listened to by professionals. In, in particular, in this occasion, the, the NHS, you know, the, 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 the organization of the institution seems to revolve around the people who are working in it rather than the people who rely on it. And, you know, I, I think the Ockenden Report is one big sharp wake-up call on that, but that, a, you know, this is a, a wider problem, a cultural problem, within a a lot of our public services yes um resources is part of of Mm the issue but even if you threw every penny you could at it that's not in itself going to be what you need
6: success is more than the final destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's discipline
5: Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today and for that we're joined by Bloomberg's James Walcock. Hi James, good morning. So this is the last day of free Covid tests. Oh does that mean the pandemic's all over?
3: I mean last day in England is worth saying, mm-hmm. I mean in Scotland and Northern Ireland they'll be going on for during April, Wales till July. Now the issue is, is that by logic that would imply yes, but currently one in sixteen people in England are estimated to have COVID. High Street pharmacies will start charging about two pounds per test. So the question is, is this is what something Sir Patrick Valance has raised, uh, who was formerly sort of you know, Chief Scientific Advisor of the UK is will there be enough early warning if mm. any sort of future waves come up and will we know enough um and it's worth saying the sort of the splits between regions are very very stark and very very different um so it's worth marking it's worth noting it's worth getting tested if you can but otherwise it's one to watch for future
4: now local elections on the, a big set of local elections on the 5th of may i was canvassed last night actually uh, mm-hmm. i live in a marginal ward very exciting uh now Keir Starmer has uh, launched labour's campaign formally hasn't he
3: Yes, he's launching it today. He's giving a speech uh, in the morning, and he will be giving that speech in Bury in Lancashire, which is quite a symbolic location because it's where a Conservative MP defected to Labour over Partygate, one of the first times that's happened in the past sort of decade. And you see this; he's planning on talking about Partygate, and also we hear he's planning on talking, labelling sort of this Conservative government as un, like uh, causing the biggest drop in living standards since the fifties and taxes the highest they've been in seventy years. Now that to me, sets this up as quite an interesting key testing ground, you and Caroline, for how Starmer's narrative of Johnson setting like the country back actually holds. And as we sort of go into this kind of period where the Ukraine war has pushed party gate, has pushed the cost of living into the background, it sets up the May election to be quite an interesting testing ground of how far Johnson really has gotten away with it and how far the public buy into Starmer as a Labour leader. So it's definitely one, if you're following UK Westminster politics, to keep an eye on.
5: OK, just very briefly, UK house prices surging and we've got the cost of living crisis, it's only going to become more real when the bill goes up uh, as of tomorrow.
3: Mm. They're going up 14% house prices and you'll see the energy price cap goes up 54%. Now, to give you sort of the very quick summation, when we have output rising at GDP 0.8 for January and expected to go up February, will these increasing prices lead to a, a drawback in UK economic growth, which really ties back into May elections yet again?
5: Mm.
4: Great stuff. Thanks so much for that roundup. Bloomberg's James Walcott joining us on Bloomberg Westminster.
5: And now, just a few days ago, uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge returned back to the UK. They spent a week visiting former British colonies in the Caribbean, including Belize, Jamaica and the Bahamas. The visit, though, was met by protests and calls for financial reparations for Britain's role in the slave trade.
4: Whilst Barbados cut ties to the monarchy and became a republic last year, the Prime Minister of Jamaica, Andrew Holness, made it clear that becoming an independent, developed, prosperous country was the next goal for his population too. Telling the royal couple bluntly, we are moving on. Well, joining us now is Nick Draper, former director of UCL's Centre for the Study of Legacies of British Slavery. Nick, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, uh, Prince William expressed his uh, uh, his deep sorrow, which is not um, quite uh, an apology. How did the the royal visit go? There was plenty of, of bad PR, wasn't there, for, for for the UK and the royal family?
7: Yeah, I mean, obviously, unknowingly, and it should have not have been unknowing, but unknowingly, the the couple stumbled into the shifting terrain that uh, exists in the Caribbean over the issues of colonialism and slavery. Those issues have never gone away in the in the Caribbean, but they've become politically far more charged in the last seven or eight years.
5: Yeah, and that that in and of itself seems rather surprising. You know, given the amount of care that, that the royal family are you know are known to take for for this to have been um, an issue that they stumbled upon is quite surprising. I suppose also that the, the idea of financial reparations, Prince William pointed to this, saying that the royals are separate to the government. That idea of, of economic reparations has never gone anywhere in Britain, has it?
7: Well, it's actually underway at the moment, so that's not quite um, correct. I think that you need to think of this at in, in, uh, two levels. One is mm-hmm. uh, government-to-government reparations, which is what the CARICOM countries of the Caribbean have sought, In 2014, they asked formally for economic reparations from the British government, from the British state. Uh, And that, as you say correctly, has not gone anywhere yet. What is happening is that there are uh, firms, families, institutions in Britain that are making uh, individual steps of what they conceive to be reparation, whether that's financial support for students from the Caribbean or, uh, in some cases, limited transfer payments two institutions in the Caribbean. So it's underway at the level of the individual firm family uh, institution. Uh, it hasn't become a, a politically uh, charged uh, enough issue in Britain for us to do the work that I think needs to happen before we can actually get to a sensible discussion about reparations.
4: Mm, well, that's and that's interesting. And, and why hasn't it become uh, su- such a, a politically why hasn't it become such a recognised issue in Britain in the way that it has in America? Clearly, it is much further uh, in our past, isn't it? Is that something to do with public opinion? We don't want to tackle it, or do you think it is simply because it is a long time ago?
7: No, I don't think that the issue of time is, is particularly uh, relevant here. Um, the history is not that dissimilar from the U.S. Obviously, slavery ended in the U.S. in 1865. It ended in Jamaica and Belize and the Bahamas, elsewhere in the Caribbean in 1838 in the case of the British. So yeah, it's not that dissimilar. The difference is, of course, that in, in the U.S., slavery was right in the heart of society, mm. whereas for us, it was 3,000 miles away, and that distance insulated Britain and still insulates Britain from a sense, a real sense of what um, a slave society entailed and what it meant. Uh, so I don't think that it's, it's a question of chronology. I think that the political climate in the UK is, is febrile at the moment. I think that this is in danger of becoming part of the culture wars uh, and therefore becoming a sterile kind of binary uh, division. In fact, what needs to happen is that everybody, I think, needs to get around the table and talk about what the history was until we have some agreement about the facts. And then we can uh, move forward with a discussion about the so
5: what. And in a way, I mean, your work at UCL has triggered that, greater conversation hasn't it the growing conversation about britain's sort of slaving past what is i suppose at the core of that work and and what you want people in britain to to understand in order to have that um yeah i suppose that that uh, non-binary argument around britain's slaving past
7: Yes, I don't think our work has triggered this uh, discussion in Britain at all. I think that that discussion was underway before our work started Mm. uh, in certain quarters. What we've done is to provide the beginnings of an evidence base for demonstrating how uh, extensively slavery permeated British society, slave ownership permeated um, British society, even Mm. though we were 3,000 miles away. Mm. And I think that's the importance of the work we've done, which is that we're able to demonstrate empirically Um, flows of of money uh, to particular places, to particular families, to particular firms, um, that took place at the end of slavery in the form of the compensation payments. That was the start point for us, this extraordinary uh, transfer payment of £20 million from the taxpayer in Britain to the slave owners uh, that was part and parcel of Britain's abolition of slavery in the 1830s. And that uh, transfer payment has understandably attracted a great deal of, of attention, anger, Uh, interest. But that payment was only the last in a whole series of of transfers of wealth from the Caribbean, from the labour of enslaved Africans in the Caribbean to Britain that took place over the previous 200 years.
4: Does it concern you that that little or nothing is taught about slavery in in, in schools, about about our, our, our past...
7: Well, after 2007, uh, under the Labour government, for a brief period, the teaching of slavery did become mandatory in uh, uh, British schools. That then ended very quickly uh, after five or six years. But because of the investment the schools made at that point, then, in fact, there is uh, a continuing uh, teaching of slavery. It's not compulsory, but it is still being taught uh, in schools. Um, And, yeah, the only way in which, in the end, uh, we'll come to a, a kind of more appropriate assessment as a society if if it is taught kind of properly, candidly, evidence-based in schools, so that uh, people grow up with the knowledge of it, just mm. as currently they grow up with knowledge of sometimes the American civil rights movement or Nazi Germany or, or Russia, which are taught and you know often are taught extremely well. Uh, but it's an oddity that we haven't taught slavery. Uh, as a compulsory part the holocaust as you know is a compulsory part of people's education um, i would argue that that um, colonial slavery should be should be there too
5: there is quite a charged debate around race and inequality in, in the uk um the government you know has released a couple of big race reports in the last uh, 12 months or so what is the government attitude? Do you feel that the government is listening when it comes to you know the issues around Britain's past? Are they, are they weighing this carefully?
7: I think that in terms of uh, the narrower issue of reparations, then the answer is absolutely not. In 2014, the, the response from the British state was what you would expect, which is there's no credible legal threat here. Why would we engage with you on, on this question of reparations? So it was pushed away. So the search goes on for a legal lever that would bring um, the British government to to the table, but has has yet to be found. In terms of of the wider engagement uh, by uh, the British state, then uh, I think that until those reports have legitimacy amongst the communities that ostensibly they address, then it's very hard to be optimistic about uh, a a sense of a national conversation. Again, it forms more part of a... a, uh, a, a binary set of culture war uh, exchanges than it does a real uh, intention to engage with uh, the evidence underlying it.
4: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio
6: in London. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Steeple. Financial advisors, let's face it if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.